The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you're kind to provide us opportunity to gather together to hear your word, to hear it and to think about it, and not just for for the sake of thinking, for the sake of gathering more information in, but for the sake of being changed, conformed to what you mean for us to be, drawn onto the path of life. We thank you for the opportunity for that. And we recognize that we need your spirit's power. So please, Father, would you commission him now to, in this room, in in unique ways, to, to control, to influence, to drive, to speak. Spirit of God, would you have your way in this room with this passage and with this people? with me and with each one of us here to make the truth plain and to make our hearts plain to us and to draw us on towards Jesus. That's our need, so that's our prayer. Would you lift up the name of Christ in our hearts, not just with voices we sing, but actually in our hearts. Mature us and grow us, build the church to his honor. So help us with this passage, Lord. It's long. It's got a lot of things in it, some hard things. Help us to think it through, to understand it, and to worship in it, please. Help us with that. You were good to give us this chance. Would you now run with it, breathe life into it, and breathe life into us? Thank you, Father. You are good. Exalt the name of the Son and build his church. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke 19. And as we noticed last week, in this chapter we come to the end of the long journey section in the Gospel of Luke. Way back in chapter 9 we read that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. That is, with resolve, he determined to start heading there to embrace what was waiting, the cross. And then in the chapters following, we saw many, many stories, many teachings, many events all laced together as he's moving towards Jerusalem. And he's confronting evil and confronting false, false op- opposition, and confronting enemies, all the while teaching and modeling and training, particularly to highlight, to to show us what discipleship looks like, which is of great importance to us, the church, because that's what the church is about, about building up disciples. So this section has been, been very relevant to our lives, not just so that we, and if you think about this as, like, here's what we're supposed to do, that's not it. It's Instead, here's what he calls us to be. A people who are followers after him for the sake of finding life. We, we look at these chapters, we, we consider today's passage not just for the here's what we're supposed to do, but so that we can find life. That's what we've been seeing for chapters now, and that journey is just about to be over. In the next passage, he enters into Jerusalem. Before he gets there, though, he has a few last things to re-emphasize. He's reached Jericho, which is a short day's walk from the city. And while there, we saw this encounter last week, large crowds are gathered around to see him, and he has an encounter with a man named Zacchaeus, a tax collector that people despised, except for Jesus. Jesus doesn't despise him, but is willing and able to pursue all sorts of people. No one is is too bad, no one is too far gone, no one is too lost beyond Jesus' reach or Jesus' love, his pursuit. 
In fact, he himself affirms at the end of last week's passage that he is sent to seek and save the lost, like Zacchaeus. And as we think about that, to seek and save the lost like Zacchaeus, we think about that, we, we realized last week that we should think about that a second time through to, to notice something particular there. Not just a general encouragement about the pursuing heart of God, though it is that. However, there's more. The details of the story show that Jesus was sent to seek and save Zacchaeus in particular. He's after that one guy. That's where to see. That's what Zacchaeus saw, and, and that's what led that man to a joyful laying down of all of his life in front of Jesus. That's, that's what the passage concludes. It's Zacchaeus' response to give away everything that he has in generous love and in particular repentance. In joy, receiving Jesus as Lord and responding to him by laying down life. That's Zacchaeus' response. That's the appropriate response of a Christian. You might say that's a summary of a whole large section of Luke. To see this Savior and then respond to him like this. That's discipleship. That's what he calls us to. That's where life is found. But there's something else that's important for him to emphasize here at the end of the journey before he gets to Jerusalem. Something that kind of gets at what people are expecting to happen. The kingdom, the kingdom of God to come now in fullness expected but that's not going to happen yet and they expected it then and we now like them have a lot of waiting to do and to help them and us through the waiting jesus told them this parable which is similar to a parable that parables that you'll read in, in other gospel accounts, but this one's a little different. We're going to focus on this one only. Parable told to help us wait through the time. So let me read the whole thing, beginning in Luke 19, verse 11, and then I'll draw out two observations from it. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And sent the delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The word of the Lord. Two observations, and here's the first. As planned, 
Jesus has departed to reign before returning to reward his faithful servants. As planned, Jesus has departed to reign before returning to reward his faithful servants. Verse 12, Jesus tells a parable about a nobleman, obviously representing Jesus himself, who's about to become a king, reigning over a kingdom. It says, the nobleman goes away into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom before returning. So he doesn't stay where he is, homeland, to become king, to receive this kingdom. He, he goes away, departs. And when he returns, he comes back as king already. We note verse 15 carefully. Jesus says, the nobleman, and when he returned, having received the kingdom... So not only does he not stay here, become king, he also doesn't come back to become king. He becomes king in the far country and then comes back as king. So no one here has anything to do with him becoming king. Not before or after. That's determined solely in the far country, showing us it's determined solely by someone else somewhere else. And he's enthroned, and his reign starts before he returns. This much we get from the parable. Now, the interesting part of the parable, the story, is not that process of enthronement itself. It may sound odd to us, because if, if we're thinking some of the kings that might be familiar to us, like the king of England does not become king of England by going to Africa, getting enthroned there and then coming back. That doesn't happen. He gets enthroned in Westminster Abbey. She gets enthroned queen in West, right in England. That's odd. But not for them. Back, back then, in that day, amidst empires where, for example, Rome ruled all kinds of distant countries and regions and districts, nobles would travel from those distant areas to Rome, have an audience with, meet with the Caesar, be evaluated by the Caesar, and while in Rome, if he passed, would be given authority to rule over his homeland, his respective area, made a king or a governor or something, and would be declared that, would be empowered with that, and then would go back. So this process made complete sense to them. That's how it happened. But what didn't make sense, what wouldn't have made sense when Jesus told this, is this procedure in this setting, in this context. Verse 11 gives us that particular setting there in Jericho. Tomorrow afternoon, we're going to be in Jerusalem. And Jesus' listeners and followers expect big, triumphant things in Jerusalem. Immediately is the word used in the first verse. The king the Messiah is to ascend to his throne right now, and the kingdom of God is to happen, to come about right now, immediately. Everything's going to change. By this time tomorrow, it's going to be different, is the expectation. The kingdom of God is going to sweep in, and Rome is going to be swept out, and all the matching blessings, the peace and the joy that Jesus has been talking about, the widespread good righteousness and justice in society at large and importantly and for me personally for those like me personally who are followers who are on his side all kinds of good is going to come to us by this time tomorrow immediately that's that's their thinking that's their perspective they expect all that right now but that's not the plan it is not going to happen And so to correct their expectation and to help them make sense of what does happen, he tells them this parable to reveal that this is not a failure that they are about to witness. To help them understand that and to help them live through it. And it's right at this point that this connects to us here because it, if, if we were to stop right there and just say that, a bunch of us would say, I mean, I have read the rest of the story. I, I know that's not going to happen. I know they think that's going to happen immediately. 
I know that's not going to happen immediately, but that this next week is going to see a great big change. You know that. Okay, so this is where this, this comes to us, and this is why this is for us too. It is not a failure that we are living through right now. Right now. This too is part of the plan. That week was part of the plan. This all is still part of the plan. Not all spelled out here, but the outline is sketched for us. And it awaits Jesus elsewhere and Peter and Paul to, to fill it in in other passages. But this is important for us because we do not do well with waiting. That, that is not a human strength. Patience. Faithful, hopeful patience. Especially when waiting is waiting through disappointment through, for them, crushing disappointment, surprising and crushing disappointment challenges us in waiting. We are living through disappointing times constantly and perpetually. And I mean, I say constantly and perpetually. I am not talking about, man, what's America coming to these days? In part, yes, but I mean this to be for 2,000 years we have been living through disappointing, disheartening times. Through low times. We've talked so much about and we've seen so much about the king and the kingdom and, and the shalom peace that he promises and we've seen his power and his command over everything indeed. But for 2,000 years, we have looked up and looked around and said, where is that? Where is the power? Where is the kingdom come? Where is his goodness? It is very natural for us when we as, we as people, when we wait through something, we wait through disappointment. It is very natural as the time goes on and the disappointments mount and the pressures mount and as the silence mounts to begin to kind of doubt that what we're waiting for is actually going to come. Or that what we're waiting for, we've been told, is actually worth it. We begin to wonder and to forget and to downplay its importance or on the other side, if what we're waiting for is something we do not want to happen, we begin to have confidence that it's not going to come. It's not worth fearing it because it's not actually going to be. We don't wait well. And I, I can say those words and I think in some way, we all can understand that, but, but let's just be, be kind of clear about that and drop it down a level and say, I'm, I'm talking about not just the everyday disappointment of where is the power of Jesus. I'm talking about when stuff is terrible. When your loved one dies, When you, when you can't figure out, in, in America, our problems, our, our first world problems are, are real problems that are painful indeed. But when you can't figure out, if you drop that down to, if you're, if you're in the Sunday school class a couple weeks back when Morris talked about the realities in the refugee camps in South Sudan, when you drop that down to that level and you say, I'm a Christian and murderous people with guns are coming after us and I can't figure out where to find safety, where to find food, where the rest of my family is, and I don't know what we're going to do tomorrow. Where is the kingdom? We could think about that, and we can all agree, but if we drop it down, this, the problem becomes acute. 
Waiting is difficult, and we are 2,000 years into the wait. And so Jesus knows that's coming. This is all according to plan. He understands that, and so he tells us something here in a parable to, to lay some groundwork to help us wait. And his, his, the, the help here is not just command, it's, it's the offer of, of promise and the offer of reward. But he wants us to wait in hope and in confidence. Here's what's going on. Just sketched out in the parable, but, but this is where we, where we sit now. We are in this period where Jesus has ascended bodily. physically to a place. We call it heaven. Where is it? I don't know, but that shouldn't surprise us. There's a whole lot we don't know about how the physical and the spiritual realms interact. But he has physically, bodily ascended to a place, and something happened to him there, which is going on even at this moment. He did not just ascend to a place. He ascended to a throne. In all glory and majesty and honor, he has received a kingdom and has taken up his reign when he sat down. We're, we're told this to, to fix in our minds an image. When one sits down, it is both the, the finishing of a task, the redemption work has been accomplished by Jesus, and sitting on a throne is the beginning of the reign. He has been seated at the right hand and his reign has been decreed, has been declared, said this is so. And then this is what's going on every day, every moment, now since then. As an effective is going away, he poured out the Holy Spirit on the earth and has been extending into every corner of the earth in every moment, in every day, the reality, the experienced reality of that reign. First Corinthians 15 mentions in a sentence, he is putting one by one by one by one by one every enemy under his feet, gathering them all in, every, 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 everything. Particularly, he's come to seek and save the lost sons of Abraham from every tongue and tribe and nation, as we saw last week. And not until that work is finished will he come. That's what's going on right now. He will come in time, in physical locale. He will bodily return to reward his faithful followers, those who are waiting well, which is... The bulk of this parable is about these faithful followers, these followers who are waiting. Servants of a nobleman. Verse 13, before he leaves, he assigns them a task. Fully enabled, he provides for it from his own riches. He gives them a modest sum of money and says, here, invest this in business. Do business with this and he knows what he's doing with that, and they know what he's doing with that. Not just trying to enrich his own household, though that would happen, of course. He's using this assignment as a way of evaluating these servants for potential roles later in the coming kingdom. That's what he's going to do when he comes back. He gives them this money, sends them away, and then we'll evaluate later are they worthy of greater riches, larger stewardship responsibilities? That's what happens in verses 15 and following. The servants are evaluated. One gains 10 times what he'd worked for in the king's judgment, what he had to work with. The king's judgment, verse 17, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you will have authority over 10 cities. The second service, servant likewise earns five times and is given authority over five cities. What's the key issue being evaluated there? Stated for the first guy and then assumed for the second. It's not wisdom. It's not business skill or savvy risk-taking. 
is faithfulness. You've been faithful with a little. Here's more. That is just exactly the point struck in chapter 16. Faithful with a little, to be faithful with more. Faithful with earthly riches, entrusted with with, um, true riches from heaven. That was his point back in chapter 16. It's the point here as well. And this is important for us to realize. He's looking for, during this time of waiting, what he's looking for is faith in each follower. Faithful discharging of the duty assigned. Which means that we, in our minds, we think through faithfulness. I see the task in front of me, and I I see the one who assigned it, and I believe it's a good task, and it's a good assigner, and that his reward after, whatever it will be, will be good. And so faith runs through all of that, and that's what then moves me to respond in obedience. An offer of reward is how he draws out this faithfulness. He says, here's the task, the reward that's coming at the end. Follow me in the task obediently for the sake of this reward. Seeing that dynamic, that's what he offers us here is help to wait. Not just a command, but an offer When I come, I will reward my faithful followers. He shows us his good character and his willing desire to reward. If you don't, I'm going to come back to this again later, but I think I need to say it now here. If you don't see that, Here's the call, and here's right next to it, the the character of the caller. If you don't see that, this is never going to get beyond command. And command is is appropriate for a king. We should not object to that. But we work differently than than purely on command. We work also with, with being drawn, with being lured, And Jesus puts in front of us, this will lead to reward for you. Blessing to you. And I know how to bless, I know how to reward. Trust me with this. Here's the task in front of you. Here's what it means, so I know it's going to be disappointing, it's going to be hard, it's going to be long. And if you hold up only in front of you, here's the sacrifice I need to make in service through this long period of disappointing waiting. If, if that's all you got, that's not going to work. You have to balance on the other side of this. Reward is coming, and I know the character of the rewarder. He's faithful. Is it hard? Is it disappointing? Is it long? Yes. Is he good? Is he strong? And Is he wise? Indeed. Has he promised me? This is the only way to, to bear up under the assignment and to move forward in faithfulness, to see the king and to see the promise of reward. For those who faithfully discharge the duty he puts in front of us. And the duty is going to be varied. It's going to be different for every one of us in every time period. He calls us to faithful service. It's the first thing we need to think about here. But there's a little bit more. Because as we talk about reward, as we see this, this balance in our mind here, the, the difficulty of waiting balanced out by the promise of reward, not just the command, but the promise of reward. We see that, talking about reward, there's something else to note here, which we need to think about very carefully because we could go wrong in a dozen different ways. So I might, I might qualify this a few different times, but, but look at this and notice. The rewards in the passage, matching the rewards from Christ to us, they are not all the same. They are all cities. Yes. Surely that matches, fits well with the parable. He's a king. He's going to get governors to rule over, mayors to rule over regions. So they're all cities. Yes. But five is different than ten. 
the servant who faithfully turned a profit of 10 got more reward than the servant who faithfully turned a profit of five. And on top of that, the servant with ten also was the one given the mina taken from the wicked servant. See this down below, verse 25, then the objection is raised. How is that fair? How is that equitable? He already has ten. And Jesus replies, everyone who has, more will be given. Which surely means, contrary to the one I'm taking it away from, but it also is contrary to the one with five. If he was trying to even things out, he could have given it to the one who had five. That would have made ten to six. But that's not what he does. What are we to make of that? Something important that we must handle carefully. The rewarding, so here's the first thing, the rewarding of Jesus is is for both, across the board, is identical for all Christians, all faithful servants, reward. And yet it's also different. It's identical and different, which is a contradiction, I understand. It's identical both servants are in the full favor of the king. Both servants are rewarded. And in heaven where there is no jealousy, we each will be content with what we have and will be delighted in what others have, even when it is more. We will be delighted in the other's greater fortune and greater honor and greater joy, whatever that is. That's true. We have to embrace that. Identical reward, and then also realize that different rewards are different on purpose, and we are told that on purpose here, and the reward has something to do with each of us. We are not to look at this and think that the tenfold gifted one that the tenfold rewarded one was just more gifted than the other one. They were given the same thing at the start. They each got one mina. Which is really good news for all of us. Think about this. You may be a person who thinks, I'm not nearly as gifted as so-and-so, or my, my gift is, I don't think it's very important. I don't have it, it's not, not very pronounced, or very strong. That guy, that gal, she's really gifted. She's probably going to get ten times reward. No. The gifting is not the issue. They each are given by God. The, the king gives them the same. That's not what differentiates. Something in the person, him or herself, the different outcome is because of something in the person, which makes sense. If reward is to have any meaning at all, it must relate to something that we can control and can think about and can make a decision about. So this, this, is, the, this is the care, this is the tension here because, well, isn't everything that we get from God like a gift from him and it's all by grace? Uh-huh, yes, it is. But then we have to respond to grace. And And... And you all know that you could sit there and, and one Christian can sit there and respond one way and one Christian can respond another way. Both faith-based responses but different responses. Maybe one Christian prays a second time about that need. Or one Christian decides, I am going to actually get out of my chair and walk over there and talk to my neighbor. Or I'm going to forego the, the, the vacation that I could take in, in the desire to give to something else, some ministry enterprise or something. Now, the care there, the, the qualifier there is, so if you go on vacation, that's sinful? No, 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 I didn't say that. 
If you stay seated in your chair, that's sinful and wrong? No. This, this is the tension in this. Both are faithful. Both are in the king's pleasure. Both are rewarded. But there's a difference because what we do actually matters. If it didn't, it would read, here, Lord, the miner received ten times back. Great. Here's five cities for you. Here, Lord, the miner received five times back. Great. Here's five cities for you. It doesn't read that way. It's different on purpose to show us something and to further entice us in this balance. It is not just that reward comes. Indeed, reward does come. Indeed, reward comes to all faithful followers. Yes, amen, that's a good thing. But to draw you on further and further into this, he says, and further and further reward comes to you who further and further embrace this and further and further obey me and further and further sacrifice for me and further and further follow me. Now, I have to be vague there in some way because I don't, I don't know the details. I don't really exactly know what that means. When the Bible talks about reward for us in heaven, it is always vague. We've talked about this in other passages when we've talked about rewards, because rewards come up often in Luke. It is always vague and never spells out exactly what the reward is. So in some sense, what we have to say is, I know Jesus is a good rewarder, I know he'll do what's right. And what he means me to see here is there's reward to be chased. Faithfully. Not guilted into. Not driven into by condemnation. But pursued in faith. So, Christian, for your eternal delight's sake, stop and think this through. Think through your life and how you, how you spend the resources that you have, your full self. And I don't mean cash. I, maybe particularly, and I mean time. Maybe, maybe that's the biggest thing, time. How do you spend your life? And as you think through, in, admittedly in the way this is vague, but as you think through, there is reward to be pursued. Would you rather recalculate your life? It's completely tricky. Because there are many, many, many things that we can do in any given moment. Many, many, many things we can spend our resources on in any given moment. And it is not true that some of them are, are religious and some of them are wrong. Most of them can be both. Is it wrong to go on vacation, as I just said? Well, yes and no. So I can't say. Yes and no. Is it wrong to buy a new car? Yes and no. Constantly. Right? This is so tricky. So I can't tell you how to evaluate that, but I can offer you, look at this and think it through. Maybe in faith, not in guilt, not, a, not under condemnation, not under a, what are you doing with your life? No, 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 no but under a, do you want to chase reward over here instead of over here? Do you, do you see that and, and are you drawn to that? Under that kind of a heart attitude, maybe you want to recalculate something. Christ is in heaven now reigning and will return to reward. And his reward will not be identical for all of us. In some way, it will match what we've done with the resources entrusted to us now, how we have stewarded them. So I encourage you to think about that.
And then also think about the second observation because it is, it is harder. We're talking about Christians in the first category. And the second observation is that Christ's return also brings dreadful judgment to all who faithlessly resist him. Christ's return also brings dreadful judgment to all who faithlessly resist him. And if you just count up words in the text, this one receives more emphasis than how he deals with the two faithful followers. The king returns, talks to the first two guys, and then turns to the third, who's called another in verse 20. And we could literally say he's one of another sort. First two are alike, but here's one who is of another sort. He's not one of the faithful ones, but he's another one. And he comes to the king and gives him back his money, obviously. And he explains why he did it. He's got a reason, he thinks. He was told to engage in business with this money, and he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to wrap it up in a cloth. And give it back. He's a disobedient servant, and here's why. He's, he's got a reason that, that makes no sense. It, it's, first of all, untrue, and then it's illogical. It's untrue in that, as we see, the servants before him knew this, this is a rewarding king, and he's, he's a good king. But the man says, you are a severe man. You are hard and mean. You take, you reap what you did not sow, and if that's what you're going to do, then why would I sow? You're just going to rob me. You're going to use me. I don't want any part of that. That's not who the king is. He lavishly rewards his servants, but besides being untrue, that's illogical because if that's who he is, then he should have acted differently. That's where the king goes to the argument. Verse 22, he takes up that line of reasoning and says, I'm going to condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant, which is a hard word, wicked. If you knew, or at least thought you knew, that I was hard and mean, that I was going to come back and demand, why didn't you produce in some way or another? So he's, he's calling him on this, pointing out the, the illogic of it. And the end result is the king takes what he thinks he has, and gives it to the other faithful servant, which surely is about the money, but is about something more than that. Here's a wicked servant, one of another sort, who has taken out of his hands what he thinks he has and has given to someone else. A man who is not like the faithful servants and is also not like the citizens in 14 and in 27 that openly resisted and hated the king. This is someone in the middle. Someone in the circle of servants who is not actually a Christian. Held up in front of us to make us think carefully. In the context, there's a, there's a whole bunch of followers, there's a massive crowds following Jesus that are going to show themselves very shortly to not be his, Judas perhaps being chief among them. But always there have been people within the circle of the church that are Christians in name, but not actually independent faith. It's held up in front of us to, to warn us, to, to call attention to that and make us think and look. What's in the heart? What, what's in the heart? of people around you, what's in your heart? Well, how do you know? The only way you can know is look at what comes out. Faithful service or not. So we're to be on guard against and notice carefully where it comes from. The man here does not actually know who the king is. we think about this 
servant of another sort. And we see uh, he didn't respond faithfully. What I should have done is responded faithfully. What I should encourage people to do is respond faithfully. Actually, you've, you've missed the connection. What we should do is say, look at the king. Look at the king. He misses him. He thinks he's severe, that he's mean, and he's blind to him. He's blind to who this king really is, to, to who he is in his beauty and in his glory and his goodness and his generosity and his rewarding nature. Jesus is not severe. He's not severe by any means. He is full of grace and mercy. As we have seen again and again throughout Luke, this is the Jesus who approaches people who are lost and holds out his open hands to them and invites them to come. He's full of grace and mercy unless... i got to say that because this is... The last sentence of this passage is real. Unless he is resisted and disobeyed and rejected, ultimately, that leads to a dreadful conclusion. The citizens who outright hated him, opposed and tried to stop his reign, what comes of them? Verse 27, the king says, bring them here and slaughter them before me. There is no way to read or pronounce the word slaughter lightly. But this is the truth. It's coming from the king. And we, in the, the modern Western world at least, it's difficult for us. We kind of tend to think that we have matured beyond barbaric language like that, slaughtering people because of religious differences. Really, 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 really important point here. The servants do not slaughter the citizens. They don't lay a hand on them. Christians have no place in the world whatsoever for passing judgment of any sort, of executing judgment of any sort on those who oppose the king. We leave that to him alone when he comes. But we say, as the verse says, this is what he says will happen when he comes. And when we say that, we are in line with the Old Testament as well. I think of Psalm 2, where it talks about the enthronement of the king. And the last verse of Psalm 2 is, blessed, blessed are those who take refuge in him. But it follows right on great warning. But now, before he comes, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. And the picture set there is of a, of a rod of iron shattering clay pots into shards and dust. It's, it's strong imagery. And what is, what is constantly held up in front of us in the Bible is, is a, an extremely sober-minded pleading. There is disaster coming. But right now, there is hope. There is an offer. There is mercy and grace put on the table. You called and invited to it. From a king who is not at all severe. Is he just? Will he execute justice and righteousness? Indeed. Think about this. 
you can bear with this, think about this. That actually is good. We've got it all backward. We think slaughter, shatter, how inhumane, how barbaric. Well, in fact, we've been duped. What is inhumane? What is not fitting for the dignity of human beings? Is the rejection of the good God who made us, who holds life in his hand, who blesses and promises, if you seek refuge in me, you will be sheltered and richly rewarded. That is, that is humane. And what is inhumane, what is not fitting to our dignity is to reject that and hate him and seek to oppose him and in his place set up people, people as rulers, people who spread wickedness and who destroy If you ever meet a father bouncing a toddler on his knee, chuckling, and then you watch somebody walk up to that toddler and slug him with a stick, and the dad keeps chuckling, you've met a wicked father. That father should be provoked to anger to defend the dignity of his child and what is all right and good. And this is the God of the universe. In the most humane of ways, he is provoked to anger. He is not naturally angry. His at-rest posture is one of smile, not severity. But he is provoked to anger to defend, to protect what is right and good, to protect human beings from all things that are evil, including other evil people. I, I understand that that is not how the modern world thinks, but it is how we should think. And we have reason to believe we should think this way. Because this king walked that path himself first. We have to come back. After, after the hard at the end here, we've, we've got to come back one more time to what's, what's the root problem in opposition to this Jesus king ruler? People don't see who he is. People just read the slaughter. People just hear about judgment and then immediately jump to, he's mean, he's hard, he's angry. No, no he isn't. He is just, but he takes no pleasure whatsoever in the death of the wicked. He's told us that. He will settle all accounts after waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting through himself being despised and rejected, offering and calling in great patience, pleading with people, come, all you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's the kindness of God, not, not a severe God. It's a God who invites people to come and find life. He has to be provoked to anger, not coerced into kindness because he is good. Do you see him like that? It's really hard. And this is a problem that people across the board, we all, we all struggle with this. It is really hard to even consider, to consider perhaps, maybe, I might think about it, following Jesus with your life. Let alone on the other end of the spectrum as a Christian then to say, Lord, here's my life, I surrender it to you. 
Lord, I'm thankful for you. It's really hard to, to feel safe with God. It's really hard to feel the love of God for you. I mean, you may know it in your head, but it's really hard to feel it. If really at the bottom level you see him as stern. I don't know if you can see my face because of the light, but it was mouth gripped. I'm saying this to you because I come to it naturally. That, that is my default way of viewing. I, I resonate very well with God as king. It is hard, harder for me personally to resonate with God as friend, as God as delighted lover of my soul. That, that's harder for me to get. But if you, if you lean like this, if you lean into the God as king, and then if you view that kingship not as a good kingship, but as a severe one, it will be difficult for you to feel the wide, long, high, deep, profound love of God for you, to believe in his steadfast care for you, to then see it as reasonable and worthwhile to lay all of your life on the table, believing that he will richly reward you when he comes. And it'll be very difficult for you to say, I will trust my life to you. I'll become a Christian. I'll surrender everything to you if you see him as severe. Thank God he is not. He has shown us that he is not in sending the son first, not as a king, but as a servant himself. He walked this path first. He came to faithfully, patiently uphold his father's command and to give his life as a ransom for many before he called us to lay ours down. And he did that for faithless ones like us, seeking to save lost people. This is the kindness of the one who is now king. This is the love of the one who is now king, who humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. In light of the return of that one, in light of his promised rewarding, that one, not not a severe king, but but a kind king, full of glorious good for you. In light of that and what is coming with him, do you see it as reasonable to say, here, here's me, to become a Christian. And as a Christian, to live like a Christ follower. It's the appropriate response to put your life on the altar in view of his mercy. He is a kind king. He is a good king. And he's king. When he comes, he will judge and reward. Let us live faithfully in light of his return at the end. Let me pray. Father, I want to ask you to take the pieces of this sermon that sit uneasy in people's minds, whatever they may be, and tie them together and make them right. We were in a bunch of different places. I pray that you would call us on, all of us, that you would call us on further into following you. And that you would do this by showing us your kindness, your promised reward. I need you to do this. So please do it. Father, by your spirit, cause the truth to sink into us and make us new. Trust this to you and pray you build your church and honor your name. Thank you, Lord.
Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.